if you thought we struggled in singing, well, uh, Acts chapter 4, please, Acts chapter 4. This is the text that I should be teaching on. I don't know if I'll get there. I want to read it anyway, just in case. Just in case. We've got a target anyhow. And uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. <clears throat> Actually, before we start reading it, just to make a note that... <clears throat> It's, uh, it's introducing a, a little section in the book, uh, kind of a paragraph thing, that is sort of uh, bracketed on each end by sort of a literary parenthesis type marking or literary marking, uh, verse 32, and then in uh, chapter 12, or verse 12 of chapter 5, is the other side of the bracket as I see it giving us a couple of, uh, is giving us some information about this New Testament church that, that, uh, that the book of Acts is describing and, and gives us a, con- a couple of uh, contrasts in these two sections in chapter 4 there and then that first part of chapter 5. And uh, <clears throat> I thought I was going to actually be trying to take up chapter 5, but as I have been reading it and studying about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, I say, what am I going to say that's pertinent and helpful? What, am I, what, is, what is this really... Why is this here in this book and so forth? I'm trying to make some sense of, of the thoughtful of the book, and and I uh, struggled a lot with that. And so in order to make sense of it, I have to kind of really go way back and try and pick up a thought thread that I hadn't emphasized earlier. So that's where we're going today, kind of try and regroup our thinking along the lines of what the text is saying to bring us back up to where we are. But let's read uh, the last part of chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according to his need or according as he had need. And Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. His story, which is very brief, is contrasted by a much more detailed and longer story, Uh, and sadder story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. They they are compared or contrasted with each other, but we won't get that far. I have to go back in my mind and and rethink how we got to where we are. And and it's going to be important to uh, 
understand what happens to Ananias and Sapphira to, to get this context, I think. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we were, uh, you know, the, the book, what the book is about, uh, its storyline, it begins, of course, with basically begins with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection is, is, is uh, again documented, and, uh, and his ascension to glory is detailed and, ta- and taught in, in, in beautiful detail. That, that is important. The risen Lord Jesus Christ, after his 40 days of, of instructions to the disciples, ro- ascended up on high, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, in his glory, exalted. And from there, from that position of exaltation and glory, he, uh, according to his promise, he sent the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is the big movement of the first part of this book, the coming of the Holy Spirit, accompanied, as we noted, at great length, as you recall, Accompanied, as we noted, by signs, by evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit arrival, his coming on the day of Pentecost was was uh, irrefutable evidence was given. They first they saw or they heard, they heard a sign from heaven. They heard a wind, rushing wind from heaven. We won't go into all those details again. I'm sure you're thankful that we won't, because we spent a lot of time on those. But that was the first thing, something they heard. The, the wind from heaven, and something they saw with their eyes, the cloven tongues like fire on the heads of each one of them, and then something that they personally experienced as they, being filled with the Spirit of God, spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they went out into the open air and preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least spoke of the wondrous works of God in the hearing of the people in Jerusalem. So that the fact of the Holy Spirit's coming was evidenced by these, these marvelous uh, three-way, three-part sign uh, that God gave or accompanied his, his arrival. Other evidence of his, of his presence now, the Spirit of God's presence. Uh, <clears throat> but let me just, first of all, my sideways notes, what did it mean? What did that mean that the Spirit of God had come in the way he had come and on the day that he had come. What, what is the implication behind that or of that? Peter makes that clear in his message then as he, as he preaches on the day of Pentecost. He makes it clear that the, uh, that the presence of the Holy Spirit come like this so that no one can doubt his presence, that he's here, that he has, that he has been given uh, from heaven. His, his presence... Uh, begins, according to the prophecy of the scripture, the last days, what the prophets called the last days. That now has begun because the last days, as Peter pointed out in his sermon, would be, would be marked by two outpourings of God. The first of all would be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the last days. And that was, Peter says, you've, you've seen it. It's here. You've seen it happen. The, the Spirit of God has come. <clears throat> so that was obviously now we have moved into the last days. The, 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 final, the final act, like Act 3, of the work of God in his great plan of redemption of mankind is inaugurated by the arrival of the Holy Spirit. 
and uh, and that outpouring of the Spirit of God on them would have evidence in them, which we talked about again, but we're not going to go into that right now. So the, the first outpouring, which marked the beginning of the last days, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the closing of the last days, it's it will wrap up by another outpouring, and that will be the outpouring of the wrath of God and judgment against this on this world. And uh, it'll be marked by the signs in the heavens. The sun will be dark and not show its light. The moon will look like blood and so forth. Those cosmic signs that earthquakes and things that are listed by Joel and other places in Scripture, we can find references of what, uh, what to uh, expect at the outpouring of God's wrath against this world uh, <clears throat> for all those who have rejected the testimony of that spirit that was poured out at the beginning of the last days. The spirit of God came to bear testimony that the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has made him whom they had crucified and whom God had raised from the dead, God made him both Lord and Christ. And the Spirit of God then, in all of the, in the apostles and in the people of God, would bear testimony to that. And all, this is the beautiful thing, in this age from the pouring out of the Spirit of God until the pouring out of the wrath of God, the, here is the thing, whosoever, says God, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Joel concluded his prophecy of. That's the beauty of this age. That's the wonder of this age. That when mankind had in their hatred and vehemence against God and against his Christ, crucified the very Son of God and cast him out like they would have nothing to do with him, we'll not have this man ruling over us. In, in face of that, God's response was, pour out the Spirit of God and give them one more opportunity, a huge one, whosoever will repent will be saved. That's God's gift. And they'll receive that gift of the Holy Spirit and become a part of the testimony of God's grace towards sinful mankind. Until... Until that day finally arrives when God will put under his feet, the Lord's feet, all of his enemies. And he will come again to reign in righteousness on the earth. But God will sweep away all opposition, all rebellion, all sinners will be put down and judged at that day. The, the terrible judgment coming, which we are we're seeing the earth ripen and prepare itself for that day coming, I think, pretty soon. Pretty soon, but <clears throat> that's the age we live in, the, the, the day of salvation, the day when God says, you have an opportunity right now to come into my kingdom, get out of the kingdom of darkness and come into my kingdom. You have the opportunity to repent of your sins and have them washed away and be forgiven and be saved forever. What an offer. What an offer. And that was where these people were. Well, another evidence that the Spirit of God was really there in these people as they spoke the wonderful plan of God's salvation on that day of Pentecost was the response that it got from the, three th from the crowd, the Jerusalem crowd. 3,000 people repented and trusted Christ and came and, and isn't that um, that's in uh, chapter 
Let me just catch up to myself. Chapter 2 and verse 41. It says that... uh, And I want to turn there because I'm going to spend a few minutes on the next few verses. They're important. Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received Peter's word, his word, Peter's word of testimony, his preaching, his, his message... They were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So what an amazing movement of the Spirit of God. Obviously, the Spirit is involved here. Peter, who was was not bold enough to do this before, is now supernaturally bold, supernaturally wise with the Scriptures, able to proclaim the Scriptures like, like he understood, and maybe he did. And I'm, I'm sure he understood a lot better than I do. But at any rate, he was able to preach the gospel with power. And uh, 3,000 people responded. Who's had a day like that? The Spirit of God has truly come. And the evidence of it is irrefutable. It says they were added. That was the thing I, I want to just notice. They were added. Added to what? Is the question we want to... That, that the... Luke is documenting the beginning, as we know now in hindsight, the beginning, the birth of the church, the the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church as we call it. That's what's being documented here and detailed. And so they were added, and and it just says added to them. What were they added to is the question. just added to that to the 12 or the 120 or however many there were that were previously already believers and disciples of the Lord Jesus it just added in numbers so that the number got really big is that what it's is that what it's implying no i don't think so i think luke is going to point out that the new converts were added to something i mean an entity they were added to something something new uh, something that had been forged by the Holy Spirit when he came. So this is what the Holy Spirit has done when he came. Now, the evidence of his coming is clear, and what he has accomplished, what he has done immediately or initially in his coming is what the, uh, Luke is, wants us to uh, take note of. They were added to something living, something new, something that could be identified. And so Luke then gives us six verses that that present us a thumbnail sketch of just what it is that these converts were added to when they trusted Christ and were baptized. <clears throat> and in and in that thumbnail sketch there's like three points that he makes. There's there's two verses given to each of the three points. Uh, and I think you can follow my thinking on that. Verses 42 and 43 will be the first point of the description of what they are added to. And it says there, of course, these are the ones that continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon all, upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So the first thing that he's, he's sketching this what they're added to, this is a company of people apparently that are committed uh, to the authority and to the, uh, and to the truth of the word of God, to the principles, <clears throat> if I can put it like that, 
the principles of God's salvation, the principles that would govern his people. They're committed to it uh, like a fourfold commitment in uh, the, the doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. <clears throat> I might say that they're, they are, those are the, the principles, the New Testament principles, and in verse 42 or 43, the New Testament power was there too. They're committed. They're steadfast in this. The, the preaching and the power, the word of God and the work of God in the souls, they're, they're there. They're into it. This company, they're just, that's, that's their new life. Uh, the authority and the majesty of the truth, like the face of a lion, I might say. You'll see where I'm going with this eventually. The second thing, then, that he says in his thumbnail sketch is in verse 44 and 45. Those two verses. All that believed her together had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to every man as every man had need. So this, we, we saw some of that in what we read in chapter 4. So there's more detail given later. But this is, he, this is the thumbnail sketch. They were committed to serving and to ministering to one another. They were committed to fellowship. They were committed, they were committed to uh, caring for one another. This was not communism or, or communalism. It, it's not that. It is, uh, uh, it's care. It's genuine care and giving. They did not give up their ownership. They gave what they owned. So there's a big difference there. They didn't give up ownership, and, and it's a principle of God. I think private ownership is, a, is one of these things that we should uh, ascribe sanctity to, like the sanctity of human life. I think there's a sanctity of, of private property ownership in God's order of things because you cannot give something you don't own, and God loves a cheerful giver. God has designed us to be, by grace, givers of grace. He only gave us grace so that we could give grace. And so private ownership is a, is a, is a wonderful gift from God. It's an order of God's creation uh, in this world so that we might emulate and look like our God who gave and gave and gives again in Jesus Christ. Huh? So that's what's going on here, and these people have caught it. They've hooked into that. They are, they are committed uh, in, in that fellowship and caring for one another. <clears throat> okay, I'm, <clears throat> I, I missed something that I was going to cover. I'll, I'll just let it go. And then the third part of that thumbnail sketch is in verse 46 and 47. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and signalness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The final thing is these converts were added to a company of people that had a great testimony, and they were cons- and they were their testimony was was in every place. It was, a, it was a beautiful testimony of God working in them. In the temple, their public testimony, in, in their 
neighborhoods, their house-to-house testimony, even amongst, amongst their very families as they ate their food together, and they, they had a, they were, everything they did was for the glory of God. They were praising God and giving glory to God in their whole, in every aspect of their life. And so this company of people, they bear a, a testimony for God. So there's this something. This is something that they were added to. People that were committed and given over to the word of God and to the, to the principles and power of God. People that were given over, they were, they, were, they were all in, in caring for one another and in fellowship together and, and in sharing. Uh, they had no, nothing that they had was too much to give. They were ready to give so that they might uh, be a blessing and a help to one another. And, and thirdly, they were committed. They were all out in their testimony. They lived, they lived for the glory, for the praise of God, for the glory of God in the whole, all, every aspect of their life. This thumbnail sketch is to be, we're supposed to start to catch this, I think, this is what a local church is supposed to look like. This is kind of what we're supposed to see. This is what will attract people to Christ. And uh, we should think about ourselves and look at ourselves and consider uh, how we match up to this sketch that, uh, that the historian is giving us of what these people, the new converts, were added to. This is what the Spirit has made. It's what he formed of the disciples when he came. It's an entity. This is, this is unique and distinct. There's no other company, no other society, no other group that is like the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the New Testament church. No other entity like it in the world formed and forged by the presence and working of the Holy Spirit and the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it the New Testament church. The uh, ongoing evidence of the Holy Spirit. They, they provide an ongoing evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, this kind of this kind of. Uh, Life's commitment, this kind of gathering, this kind of an assembly of people cannot really be done without the Spirit of God. You can, but, and uh, you can't have the one without the other, is what I'm saying. This, they, they are, that's an ongoing, if there is a church like this, there's obviously the Spirit of God is in the midst. It's the only way it can happen. So, I should ask this question. What does it mean, then, that the Spirit of God has formed this new thing, that he formed this company, this, this distinct and different society in, in the earth? What does it mean? Peter points out to us in his second message, then, which follows in chapter 3, he points out to us in his second message that the assembly is like a confirmation of what God has promised by all of his prophets, namely the restoration of all things, that God has purposed and determined to restore all that has been taken away and ruined by the curse, uh, by, the, by, by the fall, by sin and its effects, 
the curse that has come upon the whole of creation because of sin. God is going to restore it all to himself. That's the plan. That's the program. That's where he's headed. And Peter tells us that and proclaims that in that second message that we uh, studied a, a while ago now. Restoration, <clears throat> to restore something, of course, uh, means that you, uh, implies, of course, that it's broken <laughs> or decayed or something's wrong. Something has failed. Something has deteriorated from what it was. And, and to restore it is to bring it, bring it back to its value, to its original value or add more value. You restore it to its, to its uh, glory, to its former glory and more. <clears throat> the restoration of all things to himself, that restoration will be in the name and through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter emphasizes in that second message. This man that stands before you, it's by the name and through faith in his name that he is whole and perfectly sound before you. A little picture of the God's Restoration program. <clears throat> Restoration, however, is always expensive, might add. Uh, this building actually is in the uh, Renaissance zone in Minot. And we, we are eligible, have always been, but never did it, eligible to sign on or, or try to or apply for the renaissance program that they have for old buildings, old historic buildings in town and, and so forth. And you get some benefits, some tax breaks and things like that if you're, if you're part of the renaissance uh, program. I have opted not to take it, not to get involved in it. And the reason I have opted that is because I know, I know that if I fix anything on the building, under the Renaissance program, I'm going to have to fix it the way they want it fixed to maintain historical accuracy and, pre and all of that kind of stuff. I couldn't just change windows to get more energy efficient. Oh, no. You've got to maintain a historical accuracy and so forth. And so repairs and upgrades, if you even could, and things like that to a building that is under the Renaissance program is like way over the top expensive compared to if I just fix something. And so I have said, no, I don't think the benefits are going to outweigh the cost because renovation, restoration, renovation is one thing, but restoration, if you had to bring your house back to what it was originally designed to be, you know, it's so expensive. It's so expensive. It's way over the top. Uh, I know that from my past, and I just decided to avoid that because I, I have some things I want to fix on the building, but I don't want to do it in a historically accurate method. Restoration is expensive. <clears throat> just on things on this earth, where it's just a matter of decay or, you know, things breaking and things just kind of, you know. But, but when we're talking about the whole of creation needing to be restored from all of the devastation of sin over these years, these thousands of years, all of the damage that has been done 
to restore this great creation of God to some sort of a renewed and 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 I understand from the scriptures that it's going to go beyond what it was original. It's going to have even more value when when God is done with His program. What kind of a price tag would that carry? Who could begin to imagine the cost of redemption? Just one of them. Remind us of that thought again. The cost of the redemption of all things unto God. If you had all the gold and silver in the world, you couldn't begin to touch that price. And so the scriptures reminds us, no, you're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. That reminds us again of his great work, doesn't it? And the value of that work. You see, when God restores, he's not just going to put a band-aid on the problem. When God restores all things, he's going to go to the very core. He will cleanse away everything that's offensive. Every sin, every defilement, everything that has been corrupted and polluted, all of that must be dealt with and will be dealt with in the work of God. The whole curse which has, which has uh, uh, reigned in this world since Adam, that will be removed. Isaiah, we read some glimpses of this in Isaiah, what the, prophet, the prophetic can read of what the world will be like, what will it look like when the curse is removed under the reign of the, of the blessed Lord Jesus, when he comes in righteousness at last. The curse will be removed, and you know the verses, the lion and the lamb are together, the ox and the, I forget which was, the leopard or, you know, the child reaching into the poisonous snakes, den, all these things, all, anything whatsoever, I mean, nothing that will hurt in all of his holy mountain. Wow. He will remove the whole curse. And it's because the only way you could do that is going to be based on the restoration of this entire universe will be based on the value, not of silver and gold, oh no, no, but on the value of the blood of Christ. That covers it all, as the songwriter has written. It covers it all. The kingdom of God... All then, as we think about that, we recognize that the kingdom of God will operate on a whole different value system because silver and gold is not going to cut it. It just will not, it will not bridge the gap. It will not become, it will not be the currency of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a much, uh, and, and that was even introduced to us, uh, that was even introduced to us by this story that is brought forward. Peter and John come into the temple, and, and here's, here's this, there's this 
man who displays in graphic, uh, painful to look at, the the uh, the effects of the curse, the effects of sin. There he is in his misery and the sadness that's all about that. And Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none. It's not going to be on that basis of silver and gold. The world sometimes accuses Christianity. Christians are our wonderful gospel. They accuse us of being on, you know, this. If there is an all-powerful God, and an all, and He's all loving, then how can there be any sufferings on earth? And what they are asking for is a band-aid. That's what they're asking for. What they think, what they think is the answer. For this man in his crippled condition is silver and gold. Give us just something to satisfy our bodies. Just help us through our misery. We're sad and we want to be happy. If we could just have something to satisfy our sadness. That doesn't sad. That is not the currency. That is not the currency that really can be applied to the need. The need is not in the body only. The need is in the soul. Judas found that out in a very harsh way, didn't he? He thought that he could just sell out the Lord for a few pieces of silver, that silver was going to be the answer. And he discovered to his horror that it was his soul that was bankrupt and 30 pieces of silver were useless. Peter and John said, silver and gold have I not. Now, we could dump all the silver and gold in all of the world and go to the Mars and every place else and mine any other kind of precious, whatever you can find, and dump it into the needs and the miseries caused by sin, and you'd, you'd never exhaust the problem nor solve it. But Peter and John said, silver and gold, no. Not that, but what we have, what we have, that we'll give to you. And they lifted him up, and he walked and leaped and went into the temple of God to worship and praise God, where he never could be before. This this is restoration funds that they had. They had the funds of restoration at their disposal. Where did they get them? Where did they get these funds? How did they have that power to change, really change, and meet the need that was before them? Obviously, they came from heaven. They're not not earth-bound things like silver and gold, subject to corruption and the thief and all of that sort of thing. Not that would not solve the problem. They had these things that came, this, the, their funds came from heaven itself, which can minister to the very soul. They, they came via the Holy Spirit. That was the Spirit of God came, and, and which the book of Acts is, is this, this group of people, this entity that the Spirit of God forged is a, uh, a source or they're invested with 
heaven's funds, heaven's currency. They do not operate on the basis of the earthly funds and silver and gold as, as is the normal earthly uh, currency. But they operate on a new currency basis, heaven's blessings, heaven's goods, heaven's dollars, if you will. They, those funds, <clears throat> do not bear the image and subscription, superscription of Caesar. They bear the image and superscription of Jesus Christ. They are given and accessed through faith in that name. That was Peter's message. This restoration value or funds or whatever you want to apply it, the, the, the gift of God is found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In introducing this contrasting funds, we need to, and that's, uh, that, that was the thought line that I had not picked up on, but is necessary if we understand what we read to help us understand or appreciate what we read about and what we will read about with Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> but that'll be an, on another time. The church is operating on a on the basis of a heavenly currency. That's where we that's where we are today. The money on earth can only be used to meet the needs of the body. That's all it's good for. And that has some value, of course, but the heavenly currency is to meet the needs of the soul. The treasury uh, we're to we're to have a, a uh, the treasury that's in heaven of these funds, which is available to us by faith in Christ and through the Holy Spirit, the treasury in heaven is not subject to decay or corruption or thieves. It is ever real, ever true. Uh, and so how much better is it? I mean, it's not like, you know, somebody tried to introduce this cryptocurrency thing, supposed to be such the answer to, and... Uh, I, a lot of people got real rich, and a lot of people got really broke and uh, damaged. And now I don't—you don't hear anything about it. Now there's trials and things about the guy that was involved in it, and he got convicted, and all this kind of stuff. This, I, with the flush level, I guess, lever, I guess, the crypto. I don't know. I don't know what. I kind of stayed out of it, thankfully. It's not that kind of a problem, is it? The heavenly funds—they're—they're they're real more real than cryptocurrency, more real even than silver and gold on earth. They are real things because they minister real needs. Uh, uh, We are instructed by the Savior to lay up treasures treasures in heaven. We're, We're intended to increase What's in our account? Maybe I can put it like that. You probably balance your checkbook uh, regularly, like, uh, and you watch the funds dip or rise a little bit. Little bit this, you know, the. But we're intent. We're we have an account, so to speak. I don't know how exactly it works, how exactly it's kept separate. 
I don't know exactly the details of that. I'm not very much at accounting and never was even good at it on, on earthly funds. But somehow we can increase the treasure that we have in heaven. And this is similar to like the the steward did. The good steward, the wise steward. Remember, he had ten talents. And he increased it and gained ten more. And was rewarded and commended by his Lord for his prudence and wisdom in how he handled the funds that he had. I'm trying to make uh, application in my mind, my understanding of how that applies to my spiritual funds, as it were, to these restoration funds that, that we tap into on a regular basis. And one of the interesting things about this method, this, this currency system that is for the, the, the New Testament believer is that it is not... It does not increase by hoarding it, but in fact it decreases the more you grab onto and hold it and hoard it. It it increases by its being spent or being used. That's an interesting concept that is kind of opposite from our thinking, but so many things that have to do with heaven are opposite from our thinking on earth and from our our pre-programmed ideas. But the heavenly currency is increased as it's used, as it is applied. And we are not to lay up treasures on earth. Why? Because we can't take them there with us when we go. Uh, they wouldn't work there anyway. Dollars, cents, gold or silver wouldn't buy anything there. Why, the streets are made out of gold. I suppose you could fill a pothole, but there won't be one. Is it's not, they're useless there. As far as our bodily needs are concerned, to which these earthly funds and the earthly currency are applied, they're applicable to our bodies and the needs of our bodies. As far as those things are concerned, our mammon, God has promised to take care of us, to take care of those needs. Now, I know that's kind of an oversimplification because we all live in the real day, daily world, and we, we have... We have wants and needs and things that come up that sometimes trouble us and are difficult to get through. I don't mean to, to, to oversimplify the fact, but nevertheless, we are to trust in God to provide and supply the needs for our bodies. <clears throat> now, he, give, he has several ways of doing that, of course. <clears throat> he will direct in our lives and guide us to ensure that we have what we need when we need it. And it may, it may involve a lot of hard work. It may involve a side job. I may have to... I have a client that wants me to build a bed for her, and I may have to just jack the price up a little bit on that. I don't know. Where's Danielle? Oh, there she is. <laughs> just kidding, Danielle. I'm just kidding about that. No, but God gives, uses various ways. He will supply all of the things that we need for our lives according to his own promise on that, but it will also be according to his great wisdom. 
He will supply those needs in such a way that will most effectively facilitate our pursuit of true riches. Keep that in mind. What we are to be pursuing is the true riches that we lay up in heaven. And let God care for the rest of it. These things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, God will add it in a way consistent with his wisdom, which allows us the most advantageous position to pursue true riches. That means sometimes famine and difficulty and and what seems to be I'm not getting the things that I need for my body, that may be, according to God's great wisdom, the most the best way for us to pursue true riches at this particular juncture in our life and time. Or there may be an excess amount of funds that come to us one way or another that we may able to we may be able then to facilitate or to use for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God, whatever that may mean in our context. God's wisdom knows how to take care of this, these, how to handle this mammon. And, and we must trust him with that and leave it to him. <clears throat> so even though we can't take our earthly funds with us when we go to heaven, We can use our earthly funds on earth that God gives us in such a way to add to the treasures that we have there. That's what I'm trying to say in a nutshell. Now that, according to what we read now, I know I'm skipping a little bit, but the end of verse chapter 4, that is what this distinctive body of of disciples forged into a into a kind of a, a definable company of people by the Spirit of God. This distinctive body, that's what they were all about. They were all about the riches, the true riches. They were they were together, it says, they weren't pooling their earthly money into a pool so that it could be used they, weren't, they didn't do it like that. They weren't pooling their earthly things. They were pooling their true riches, as it were. See verse 32 that we read in chapter 4. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. That's where the true riches, that's the currency of the true riches, is the heart and the soul. That's where That's where the the riches before God, the heavenly, the restoration funds apply in the heart and in the soul. It's in, it's in your it's in your heart that you and in your soul where God ministers to your to your real needs. And they they pooled that, so to speak. They were all one heart and one soul together. They they pooled together their all their heavenly resources, their heavenly blessings, their heavenly con. I, I, got a, I don't know how this exactly, again, I, maybe I'm a little bit adding here, but I don't think so. I think, I think that the, uh, 
it says that they, part of that operation, part of what that meant practically, when they're when they're they're all in with their with everything that God has really given them, the true riches that they have in Christ, and they're all in together with that. They're they're united united together with that. Well, that brings along all these other things. They don't really care that so much about who owns what as far as the earthly riches are concerned. They just let that work out as it needed to be. If you had a need, hey, I got something that will meet that need. You're welcome to it. That's kind of the attitude because they were all about the real riches, their one heart and soul together, about their fellowship together, about these things that we talked about that made them a distinctive body. They were all together in that. They pooled the whole works into one big pool. And and look at the amazing results of that in verse 33. It gave them great power to their witness, to the apostles' witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, wouldn't that be... Sometimes I've I've thought, you know, where's an assembly? We seem kind of weak. This is is the the solution to weakness is, is all in all together in the things of Christ, in the things of God. I don't care about dollars and cents at this point. Those will play out as is needed here and there. We, we have a whole different attitude about those, but we're all together in one heart and one soul, and it will give us great power in the witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one will be able to doubt that Jesus Christ lives when they see a church like that. And they will have great grace. Great grace. What does that mean? What does it look like to have great grace? My wife and I are going to celebrate this year. I mean this next year. It'll be after the, in this winter, in February, February, March. Well, it'll be from February this year. This is a real one. <laughs> Our 48th anniversary. That is an example of great grace. That she has stuck with me, faithful to me for 48 years. That's great grace. Great grace means that we, well, it's the bond. It's the bond. It's it's the bond that, you know what grace is, God's riches at Christ's expense. What it's, it's talking about is the fact that God is good and gracious, is kind to us, even though we don't deserve it. And, and that's the kind of thing that, that, that's what marks grace, is the fact that it's not deserved, and yet given. And that, that is what is so needed in an assembly of God's people. Grace. To forgive and forbear, to live and to work together, to understand and to accept the hope. That's great grace. That is what they experienced. We won't get to see the example of Josie's. The, they called him Barnabas. We'll maybe pick that up next time as introduced us introduces us to this next section. I, I want to just quit right there. Uh, there. There will be more. There is another element of this great of the greatness 
the great things that happen to a body of Christians that are all in, that, that contribute whatever they have to the whole body. And I'm talking about spiritual things. What do you have in Christ? Contribute it to the body. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Not the things of this earth. If you want to throw them in the pot, the, the box is right over there. And the Lord will bless you. He will bless. You will not, you'll not be wanting if you're a good giver, if you're a faithful giver of these earthly things. That's fine. That is beautiful. But that's not my thrust. My thrust is what do you have spiritually in Christ What blessings has God given you? Throw that into the pool, into the body, into the collective group. And uh, and great, great power will be ours. Great grace will be ours. And then, after the time we get to the end of Ananias and Sapphira, we'll find out that great fear. In in, uh, chapter 5 and verse 5 and chapter 5 and verse 11, great fear came upon them all because they they've become to realize and understand the awesome reality of the living Spirit of God in us and with us. And so, may God help us and lead us to understand these things too. I pray. Father, thank you for your grace upon us. Grace greater than even all our sins. It's just a it is not just. It is also an evidence and a token that you are able, that the value of Calvary is able to restore all things. For your grace is greater than even all our sin. Our Father, we thank you. Help us to understand the thrust of what your word is teaching us as we look into these things. Now open it to our hearts and to our understanding. And then help us, O oh God, by the gift of your spirit, to apply it, obey it, and to honor you in so doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.